Happy Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in to episode 34 of Share Crime. I'm Kenzie. And I'm Amy. Today, we are covering the Hulu documentary, Truth and Lies, The Menendez Brothers. This sensational case flooded television screens in the early 90s when Lyle and Eric Menendez shot and killed both of their parents in their Beverly Hills mansion. The prosecution painted these two brothers as spoiled, rich brats who killed their parents to collect the insurance money from their deaths. But the defense took a different angle to their case. They made the shocking claim that Jose Menendez, their father, had sexually abused them their whole lives, pushing them to take matters into their own hands and end his life along with their mother's. After a mistrial and a conviction, both Lyle and Eric were found guilty of first-degree premeditated murder and sentenced to life without parole. With the who already known, the trial centers around the why, and many wonder if the abuse excuse is enough to prove self-defense. Hey, Amy. Hey, Kenzie. It's fucking hot outside. Dude, this is not even cool. Unreal. This is not beginning of June weather. No. This is end of August weather. Well, it's like 100 degrees out and the humidity and the heat index is unbelievable here. Yeah, it's awful. If any of you know what the feels like temperature means, it's like feels (laughs) like 110. Like you're on the surface of the sun. It's awful. Basically, yeah. Yeah. I feel bad even letting my dogs outside. I know. It's horrible. The ground is super hot, too. If you go on, like, asphalt, it's hot for dogs. Yeah, and there's been a couple of... So we've had about a week now, I'd say, of, like, straight 90s. And each time I see somebody outside walking their dog, I'm like, I'm sorry. That's a bit risky Mm -hmm. to be doing. You are literally burning their tiny little paws. I know. No. You do it right away in the morning. Don't take your dogs out. Or not at all. No. No. I feel bad. Well, today we are going into the Menendez case. Yes, we are. Very excited about this case. I have a lot of feelings about it, as I'm sure you do too. It's crazy to think that it happened so long ago now. Oh my God. I was thinking about that too when it first started because I, of course, like I knew about it. I was like four. It happened before I was born. Oh my God. You have to say that? (laughs) Two two years before I was born. Oh my God. (laughs) Crazy. That is crazy. No, I I don't know. I honestly, and when I think back about it, I truly thought these brothers were kids. Is there another set of brothers that killed their parents as teenagers? Because I truly thought these kids were kids, not adults. Well, could be. But I remember this. I thought they were older than they actually were when they oh. committed the crimes. And I think it's just because I didn't look into it too much. But to me, they seemed older than that. They seemed to be like in their mid-20s to me. Oh, yeah. But, I I mean, knowing that Eric was only 18 years old. Yeah. That is nuts. Uh Uh-huh. That is fucking crazy. Yeah. So, before we get into it, we did want to give you guys a little bit of an update. We're doing a little bit of a change here for the summer. Yes, We have a lot happening this summer. We do. Summer is busy for both of us anyway, but, you know, Amy's getting ready for Gabriel's arrival. There's a lot of things with Kaylin and lacrosse. Oh, my gosh. Yep. And we go up north a lot for the weekend. So we are going to be moving 
from weekly to bi-weekly episodes for the summer. And then we're going to see how things go when Gabriel gets here to see how we want to proceed. We're hoping to go back to weekly in September. Yeah. But we will definitely keep you guys updated. So we're going to try to also sprinkle in a few minisodes so you guys can have a little bit here or there for the summer on those weeks that we don't have episodes. Right. But we just wanted to let you know things will be changing here come next episode. Right. We just wanted to give you a quick heads up so that you weren't surprised. And we'll, of course, also shoot this out on our social medias just as a reminder to. Yep. Just so you're well aware. Yeah. And not confused. (laughs) Right. So you know when to look for new episodes and you're not disappointed on the week that we don't put one out. Right. Exactly. So this week looks like you are drinking another LaCroix, but a different flavor this week. I am. (laughs) So I had bought that other box. And I swear to God, that last one like lasted forever because I just drank the last one out of it yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Drank? Is that a word? Or is it drunk? No, it's drank. Is it drank? Yeah. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) I think so. Well, if it's not, it's a word now. (laughs) So this one is the pineapple strawberry LaCroix. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like from their curate collection. So it's their tall, skinny cans. Yeah. They look like truly cans. Right. Yes. And they're they come in eight packs rather Mm -hmm. than 12 packs. One of my friends messaged me today. She's like, "Okay, where do I find this cherry lime LaCroix you keep talking about? Mm -hmm. Because my Cub Foods does not carry it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there are certain locations that don't. So I would check Walmart. Walmart That's in your area. Walmart has them. We go to Hy-Vee and get ours. I get mine at Hy-Vee. I think I've also found them at Target. Oh, yeah. Yep. Target, too. Yeah. So check it out. But yeah, I've got pineapple strawberry today. Looks very yummy. It does. I am going back to the blueberry truly. Ooh, nice. We had some leftover in our fridge, and I'm like, you know, that's blueberry and acai. You know, I didn't know how to say it, so I was just going to forget <laughs> about it. <laughs> I call it a kai. A kai. Well, there we go. That's 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 what we're doing. <laughs> I was going to forget about it. <laughs> As yes. people are out there, like, I can't find the blueberry Where one. Is the blueberry. No, so that I'm going back to this. We had it in our fridge, and it looked really tasty and refreshing. So on this fucking hot day. So perfect. I know. I thank God for air conditioning. I know. I know. Let's praise to the inventor of the air conditioning unit. Oh, (laughs) seriously. That guy deserves like statue erected in his honor. (laughs) Because this shit is no joke. No. All right. Ready to pop your tops? I'm ready. Wow. That got out of control fast. (laughs) It shot me in the eye. That escalated quickly. (laughs) It's on my dress. Mmm, <laughs> yummy. Always a good choice. Oh, I can definitely taste the pineapple. Mm-hmm. That's a really good one. I can like smell it. So you can start us off this week, Amy, with our intro into the Truth and Lies, the Menendez Brothers documentary. All right. Yeah, so we found this documentary on Hulu and it was a one-parter, about an hour and a half, would you say? Mm-hmm. About an mm-hmm. hour and a half. American Sons, American Murderers. So I was like, okay, yeah, let's jump right in. So the first thing that you see when it starts off is a voice recording from Lyle Menendez, the older brother, done in 2017. So not that long ago, what, four years? And he is currently in Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. I'm pretty sure that I am saying that wrong. It's probably like Ione. Probably. I have no idea. I won. (laughs) I won California. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. 
We're going to put that and acai in like the same bucket. Those two words are just, they're not, they're not happening today. No, we don't care. We're not Googling it. It is what it is. So we hear Lyle speaking a little bit about at that time, how he had been in prison for 26 years. He was saying that he was one of the kids that had killed his parents and that nothing can change that. He says that, you know, no amount of regret can make that change. It is what it is. He also goes on to say that oftentimes we are defined by just a few moments in our lives and that you'll also be remembered by that over the totality of your life. Yeah. And I mean, when he said that, I was like, fuck, that sucks. Well, when you murder someone. Yeah. That's how you should kind of be remembered. I mean, a little bit, right? A little bit. I mean, that's that's a big mistake. If you're talking about right. it one moment in time in your life, you had the option to not do that. Yes. So, uh, yeah. but I get it. Hearing that and thinking that is like, holy shit, that does happen a lot to right. a lot of people, even people that don't murder another person. It happens right. in their life, too. So in the documentary, it kind of pops us back and forth a little bit between years to kind of give us a little bit of background. So we're taken back to 1989. And Terry Moran from ABC News is telling us that Lyle and Eric Menendez seem to have it all. They lived in a fairy tale world of wealth and country clubs. Both of them were top flight tennis players, one of them playing at Princeton University, and the other one was set to go to UCLA in the fall of 1989. He also says that their father was a powerful Hollywood executive. Robert Rand, he's a journalist, comes on and says that basically this family was living the American dream, which how many times do we hear that? I literally hate it. No. In, <laughs> I know. But in this way, he kind of gets it. So... The American dream, especially to somebody who immigrates here from another country, is making it big and being able to take care of their family, which is what happened. So they ended up with this mansion in Beverly Hills. They're living behind this big gate. I mean, on the outside, you know, they appeared to be, wait for it, the perfect all-American family. (laughs) How, How many times do we hear this in these murder documentaries? Apparently... We have many definitions of all-American family and the American dream. Yes. That's just what it is. We meet Pam Bozanich. She's a prosecutor from the Menendez brothers case. And she says that people assume that if you have money, you have no problems. And you're certainly not going to be the type of kids that would kill your parents. You would assume. You'd think so, right? But it turns out rich people have dysfunctional families just as much as poor people have dysfunctional families. One kid killing their parents is a bad seed, she says. But two kids killing their parents is a bad family. Well, you have to remember, what we're talking about, they have all this money, right? Yeah, Money is the root of all evil. Truly. It literally always comes down to money. Why people murder other people. Why husbands and wives murder each other because they don't want to give the other person their money, right? right. Or they're going to get life insurance. Or whatever it is. I mean, people are always fighting their whole life to make the dollar. Right. And it's never enough. Right. No. You could have $50 million in the bank and it's still not enough. You'd still want more for whatever the reason is. I'd be okay with one. Right. Just give me one million. (laughs) And I would invest it very well and I'd be set. Yes. (laughs) All of our things would be paid off. Yes, exactly. We would not live crazy. No. No. And most people wouldn't. I mean, especially people who know how to utilize and spend their money now. Yeah. Typically, 
they could invest well if they if they got the chance to make money. But then you have these people that don't, you know, that right. don't know how to deal with money and getting a large sum of money. They just spend it on whatever stuff they don't need. Right. Like airplanes and right. fancy cars that they don't need. The things that literally do not invest for them in any way, shape or form. No, not it, at all. It's literally throwing money down the toilet. Now, back in 1959, we learned that Jose Menendez was an immigrant who was very driven to achieve this, like we mentioned, American dream. We learn from a neighbor of the Menendez family, Alicia Hers, that Jose had immigrated from Cuba at the age of 16 years old, that he was the only boy and had been very much adored by his mother. In fact, his mother really, really spent time emphasizing his male image, which kind of went against what I think she wanted. And he became a bit of a bully in Cuba and then also became a bit of a monster to his parents. And it was really hard for them to control him. He sounds like a horrible human altogether. I mean, yeah. I mean, he grew up to be an awful human being, too. So. Right. Right. Yeah. It wasn't <laughs> like he. Yeah. This all started way young. Yeah. How he became who he was was because of how he was as a child, too. I agree. That always has something to do with it. Terry Moran comes back on and says that Jose being a Cuban immigrant and a teenager at the time when he moved here, he had very little pushed so hard to make and be something. He worked in several different industries, such as working in like car rentals. He was in the music industry, moving on into the Hollywood production industry. And he was just a guy with some ferocious drive and incredible talent. I think this goes back to the salesman type thing, because I'm pretty sure he was really good at selling himself. Probably. When he needed to, to get where he was at. Because he had like a really prestigious role when he worked for Hollywood. Right. How the hell do you get there as an immigrant? You know, like you have to know people typically. And he just, he made it big. He made himself wealthy. I mean, he was a very successful person. Right. And it sounds like he was one of those people that did not back down from a challenge. So I think he was somebody I can't relate to. Somebody who does not give up. I, I I don't get it. Put one little pothole in the road of, you know, where I'm traveling. I'm like, okay, apparently I'm supposed to turn around and go home now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This journey has ended. It's too tough. Sorry. It's too much. I can't do it. (laughs) These are new tires. (laughs) We meet Brian Anderson. He's the brother of Katie Menendez, also known as Kitty. And she was married to Jose. So she was the mother of Lyle and Eric Menendez. Mm -hmm. Brian says that Jose and Kitty met as students at Southern Illinois University. Kitty was known to be beautiful on the inside and out, like just a really nice, all-around good person. He says that the two of them got married while in college and then moved to New York after graduation. Robert tells us that the most significant change to their relationship and their marriage was the birth of their sons, Lyle and Eric. Kitty had had dreams of being this famous actress, but when their sons were born, Jose basically told her that she would have to quit all of that and take care of the children instead. Which, I mean, I get it. I would love for somebody to be like, look, we're having a baby now. You're going to have to quit and you're going to have to stay home. See, I would be defiant. I'd be like, the fuck if you're telling me what to do? See, I guess if somebody was telling me that, but if somebody gave me like, (laughs) now you're having a baby, so guess what you get to do? Yeah, And I'd be like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
it's probably a lot of mom's dreams, right? To be able to stay home, to be able to afford everything you do with one income, right? Right. Just doesn't really work that way for most middle-class people. But in Kitty's case, she didn't want to be a stay-at-home mom. She wanted to have a career as an actress. And Jose, Jose just told her, no, you can't. You don't get that option. I'd be like, fuck off. I'm a person too. I would just be that defiant person. Like Jared would never try to come at me like that. Uh, No, Jared would would be like, okay, honey, I will stay home (laughs) and watch the kids from now on. (laughs) And then you'd be like, damn right, you will. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Brian comes back on and says that the boys were terribly spoiled. He even had told his sister Kitty at one point that it would be smart to try to rein them in a little bit with some sort of discipline and hold them accountable for their actions. To which Kitty did the, of course, mother response of, don't tell me how to raise my boys. Mm-hmm. Newsflash. If other people are telling you your kids are monsters, you're doing something yeah. a little bit wrong. Just listen to the advice and Take make a few changes. It doesn't have to be like your whole right. parenting style out the window. No. But if other people are coming out telling you this, there's something wrong. There's something probably wrong. Because as a parent, we all believe that we're screwing up our kids, right? And that we're just doing the worst thing possible. But (laughs) if other parents are complimenting how great your kids are, even if they're little shits at home, you're doing a good job. Yeah, you're doing something right. Right. Kitty had always wanted the boys to be as competitive as she and Jose were. So they really pushed that on the boys. Which... Isn't that kind of weird? Don't yes and you know? Don't you want your kids to grow up and be who they are? Like as a, like and let their personalities like blossom and let them become their own individual people instead of like, well, you know, I love being competitive, so I'm going to make sure my kids are always competitive and make sure that winning is only the option and you can't lose. And I mean, I already could tell that I didn't yeah. like I didn't like how they structured their family. Right. They wanted it to be so perfect. And the, the way that they thought was like perfection in their mind. Yes. You can't tell your kids to be like you. Right. They're their own being, you know. And I think this this is how it all started. This like strict rules. You have to follow them. You have to win. You can't lose. Like it started real early on with these boys, unfortunately. And that's all they ever knew, which is sad. I mean, it's so, so sad. I mean, you could have all the money in the world and be goddamn miserable. A hundred percent. You know what I mean? I mean, I I can't, I can't wrap my brain around that. (laughs) But I've heard (laughs) through documentaries. It's like, I wish I could be crying with all my cash. Oh my God, did you see the TikTok yet? Oh, I've got to send it to you. It's the girl, she's standing there and it's like, pick one rich and depressed or happy and poor and the next like few clips are her like sobbing but like in front of a mansion and then like on like a plane and then on this like you know this island all by herself just sobbing (laughs) drenched in like name brand things and i'm like i mean i can cry pretty if i need to (laughs) okay i digress it's so funny when thinking about jose and his sons Terry Moran really thinks about the word as ownership coming to mind. He says that these were his prize thoroughbreds, his boys. They would reflect Tanya's own glory. And if they didn't, God help them. And the world that the boys grew up in was very affluent and began in Princeton, New Jersey. Very different from the world that Jose grew up in, where he had to fight to be something. Right. 
Yeah, these boys were just handed it on a silver platter. Which can also be a bad thing, right? Oh, 100%. No, I totally think that's a bad thing. You're giving your kids way too much and not letting them work for something so they don't think that they need to. And again, we see a lot more of that throughout the rest of this and the rest of their life. That's that's how it was. Yeah. Jose got them out of everything. Scott free. They didn't even have to do anything. Oh, there was such a level of entitlement. Oh, for sure. That I think comes with that, too. I mean, even as poor, you know, even as a poor person, you can make your children become entitled by not making them do shit for themselves. Right. right. It's a very, very slippery slope. It is. Alicia remembers that when they were living in Princeton, that she had seen these as just some rich kids. And basically, they looked at themselves as being a step above everyone else. She says that Princeton was really about that old money feel. And you didn't walk around and flaunt it. You didn't, you know, throw it in people's faces that you had money. But the Menendez family was different. They really wanted to make it known. Oh, yeah, because it wasn't old money to them. (laughs) No, no, they were really proud of it. Yeah. And I mean, I kind of get that. But at the same time, it's like, you're kind of like walking around with like a big neon sign above your head. Yeah. As Jose changed jobs and companies, this beautiful home became available right in the center of Princeton and it caught their eye. And Brian remembers his sister being so proud of it and all of its glory. I mean, it had to be really impressive for them to be able to afford something like that. It was a really nice house. The, nice the image house. that we saw was really nice and pretty. Yeah. Our journalist, Robert, says that they were very concerned over the facade of their family. The Menendez really wanted to make everything look perfect. Before there was Instagram, before there was Facebook, they did everything they could to make sure that everybody knew that things were amazing. And the boys ended up being one really important way to accomplish that look. Robert says that back then, Kitty and Jose would even do their son's homework, making sure that the homework would be turned in perfect, 100%, But then, soon after, the boys would have a test on the subject and they'd fail it. Literally setting them up for failure. What is wrong with them? I don't know. That is a goddamn joke. You're literally making your kids dumber. Like, they don't have to do anything. They're not learning anything. Right. You're setting them up to fail in life. Yeah. But you think that being that all their homework grades are A pluses or whatever you want them to be, that doesn't help when they have to take the test in school and don't know what the hell is going on. I know. I used to think the same thing, Kenzie, when Kaylin would come home in elementary school and have some kind of a project that was due Mm -hmm. that they would be working on for a little bit. And then she would get all upset because so-and-so in her classroom's mom did the whole project for them and, like, typed it up and printed it off on, like, computer. Like, did all this stuff so that their project looked, I'm sorry, not like a second grader did it. Right. It looked too perfect. Looked too good. Way too perfect. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like my me in middle school wouldn't have been able to put that together. (laughs) Why? Why would you do that? And I also was like, these parents have way too much damn time on their hands if this is what they're able to do. No. Because for me, I'm like, you know where the colored pencils are, you know where the crayons are. Get to work. And I'm done with school. Right? Sorry. Sorry. I I did this already. I'm not doing it again. I don't want to. No. <laughs> I'm an adult. I have my own fucking problems. I don't need to worry about your art project. Hell I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> or your stupid cardboard cutout yeah. presentation board. Yeah. No. No, thank you. I did that. Done that. No more. Yeah. Nobody has time for that. <laughs> well, they also kind of 
wrangled these boys in by also telling them who they could and couldn't date and who they could or couldn't be friends with. I mean, it's another level of crazy. I literally can't understand. In a way, if you think about it, though, if they're trying to hang out with a bunch of people that are like just trash people. I mean, obviously, you'd not want your kids to hang out with those people. Right. So we don't know exactly what that level was. They didn't go into detail as far as like, you know, they had to be A students. They had to have this. They had to have this. But that was another way that they kind of were a little bit more strict with boys. They were expected to be tennis stars and to go to Ivy League schools and be the top of the top at those schools. When they lived in Princeton, New Jersey, the boys were given everything, even limo rides to and from school. Limo rides. That's too much. That's too much. You're doing too much for your damn kids. I'm sorry. Yeah. And many people just thought they were completely showing off Mm -hmm. through their children. Of course. Of course they were. Yeah. Robert explains to us that Lyle was expected to be the better and more improved version of his father, Jose. Like, how much more pressure can you put on a person? So having a son go to an Ivy League school was just another part of this American dream that Jose wanted. But Lyle had mediocre grades, really wasn't Princeton material, aside from him being a strong tennis player. I mean, that was really the only thing that kind of got him in. In fact, his tennis abilities and a $50,000 donation to the school by Jose was what got him on the roster. Why does it remind me of the fucking college admissions scandal shit? Because it does. (laughs) It's exactly what it is. No, it does. (laughs) You got to bring in a donation. Otherwise, they're not even considering you. No, not even. And honestly, I think that's all those Ivy League schools are about. I think they take in like four people of not rich backgrounds across the entire country. Oh, yeah. And that's it. Well, think about it. Okay. So... He donated $50,000. That's not towards his schooling. No, no, that's that's not his tuition. No, no, no. Tuition is completely separate. So if you think about it, especially some of the ones nowadays, millions of dollars they're giving to these fucking Ivy League schools. That doesn't even... That is... People have way too much fucking money. If you're doing that, you have way too much fucking money. That is... For real. Unbelievable. Oh, we will go into that and we will be covering that documentary at some point. We will. (laughs) The worst part about that too, Kenzie, is they're going in for degrees that are useless. Completely useless degrees. Okay. A lot of them are either have celebrity type parents. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. They're already on social media. They already have following. They already are making their own money. Why Why? the hell do you need a piece of paper from fucking Cornell or wherever the hell you're going to tell you that you have a degree in what? Psychology or a business major or whatever the hell you're going for. Yeah. You're not going to do that. You don't have to be a real working person. Right. You can be a social media influencer and make... Ten times more money. Exactly. It doesn't make any damn sense. No, it doesn't. It's honestly just ass backwards. And I think it's just to say that your kid went there. It uh-huh. doesn't matter if they actually use the degree or not. It's, again, gloating and th- the parents being able to say, oh, my God, yeah, we have all of our kids went to Ivy League schools, Ivy, yep. League, Ivy League colleges. It's, college uh, is college is college. And to be right. honest, a lot of people should not go. Right. No, they shouldn't There's go. There's a lot of jobs that do, do not, not require, require it. it. Or it's more of like hands-on type of learning yep. that you you go to school for, what, six months, a year, spend half the amount of money, and you get paid way fucking more at those jobs. Exactly. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, ultimately, Lyle was flunking out academically, but he also wasn't really doing things that he was supposed to be doing socially either. So why don't you tell us about that? So we hear from Robert Rand 
that Lyle had been accused of plagiarizing a paper while at Princeton and was suspended. Now, Jose finds out about this immediately, runs to the school to try and stop this suspension from happening, but he was unsuccessful with that. Didn't work. I wonder he got what suspended he tried anyway. to do. Like, did he try to give him money? Probably. You know, probably oh. push right, right in checks to see if they'd take some bribe. Jose was such a dominant force in their family that there was almost a sense of fear in disappointing him. I can fucking imagine. This guy oh, yeah. looks terrifying. And all the shit that we're hearing about him, I would never want to be close to this guy. Like, no. he is a terrifying person. You don't want to piss off a Cuban. No. No. Now, Pam's first impression of Jose's character was that he could be charming if he needed to be, but he was mostly just abusive. Ew. Yeah. What a fucking horrible thing to have someone portray you as an abusive person. Like, fucking change. I know. Fucking I know. change. Yeah. So in this documentary, we actually see some old interviews with Barbara Walters and the boys in prison. So yeah, right after they had been convicted, of course, Barbara Walters is on the story on the case. She gets to have an in-prison interview with them. Oh, so yeah. we have a few excerpts throughout this documentary that yeah. talks about this. So we get Barbara asking Eric, describe your relationship with your father. Eric says, and I quote, brutal, painful, torturous. And yet I admired him because he was so strong and he was everything that success was that I was taught that success was. And I thought that he was the most powerful and brilliant person I had ever met, end quote. I'm not at all surprised by that description. No. I think that I've never met this man in my life, obviously. Yeah. I know very little about Jose Menendez outside of this. But I feel like that was such an honest answer. Yeah. It made sense. Totally. Especially as we learn more, right, about the relationship. Right. It completely makes sense. Yep. To Terry Moran... He says the Menendez brothers became murderers that were shaped by Jose Menendez completely. They did everything he said to do. They yeah. followed his way the whole time. So someone taught them to be this way, right? Mm -hmm. Someone helped them progress into murderers. Yeah. Not that Jose was a murderer, but I think he taught them really well how to be dominant. Yeah. And how to use that yep. later on. Yep. So we kind of pan back to 1987. And the Menendez family had lived in Princeton for 20 years when Jose got a new job with Coralco Pictures and moved to California. So initially, they lived in the suburb of Calabasas. They were really proud of the home that they were able to find and started remodeling it. It was beautiful. It was huge. Yeah. yeah and it's in like one of those gated communities type of thing. Yeah, it had its own, like, in their backyard, they had their own private tennis court. Yeah, I mean, it's what you so think you know, of when you think of, like, Hollywood yes, mansions. Yes, Yeah. We meet Karen Farrell. She was a friend of Kitty Menendez. And she says that she thinks the cheapest house in that neighborhood was around $2 million, going all the way up to around $22 million. Yeah, give or take. Yeah, give or take. A million or 20. <laughs> Can you imagine having the $2 million house? What does it look like? <laughs> Does that look like a trip? I mean, is that the little rambler? Okay, if I could only afford a $2 million house, I'm going to the houses that are like $800,000 and like a million five. Pimping so, that out. So my house looks the best on the block. Hell yeah. <laughs> Why would you want to live in a neighborhood where your house is the cheapest? Because it's the smallest, for sure. Yeah. 
No, I think that's like the security house was the two million. That was just the, you know, the the guy you got to drive past to get to the to get to the twenty million dollar. Yes. Yes. Now, Karen goes on to say that Frankie Avalon had raised his kids there. Robert Blake and Bruce Jenner also had lived there. And this neighborhood even had helicopter ports so the residents could come in and out as they pleased on their private helicopters. Like, oh, must be nice. Rough life. So is that what teleportation is like? (laughs) Must be. (laughs) Because I always imagined that someday I would live in a place where I could just hop onto a helicopter and miss traffic. I know. So they showed us a picture of these helicopters going up like behind where the Hollywood sign is. Yeah. Is that where Calabasas is? I'm going to say yeah. Because to me, they were assuming or telling us that that's where the, the helicopter pads were. So I that's mean, pretty it's a suburb of L.A. And the Hollywood sign is right there. I mean, right. you can see it when you're on yes. Hollywood Boulevard. Right. So I'm thinking that's probably the same area. Yeah. But. She goes on to say that the kids in this part of town were very spoiled and also dabbled in drugs. Well, yeah. They can probably get a hold of anything they want. And they can afford the shit. And they're bored. (laughs) They don't know what else to do. Right. We meet Craig Signorelli. He was a friend of Eric Menendez. And him and Eric hit it off from the very beginning. They were both thinkers. They loved to play chess. And they just had a lot of the same interests. Yeah. Eric was different, though. He was really ostentatious and liked to be the center of attention, and he was well-liked by many people. You can see that off the bat in his interviews. Is that funny? Because the first thing I thought of, like, when I look at Eric Menendez, I'm like, you look like a fucking creep. He does. He looks like a fucking creep. It's almost like he's trying not to crack a smile every time he talks. He looks so creepy. Like, he's talking about his parents' murder, and, like, I almost see, like, the smirk coming on his face. I'm like, what in God's name is happening with you? Why are you laughing about, or kind of laughing about the situation? It's weird. Like, he would be perfect cast as the Joker. Yes. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, like, Lyle seems like a normal guy. He does. Yes. Kind of. You know what I mean? Uh, But looking at the two of them. Yes. Yes. Comparing the two, yes. Lyle seems more normal. Eric, I would not trust with my back to him. Nope. Now, Eric and Lyle kept getting into trouble. They were hanging out with friends, and they would do these things called hot prowls, which is where they would sneak into people's houses while they're away and think about committing a burglary, but not really doing it. Maybe just seeing if they could get away with the the act of getting in almost as if they were dreaming about the fantasy of committing a crime. But I'm like, you fucking are committing a crime. Like, even if you don't fucking That's steal something, and entering. you <laughs> broke into someone's house. Like that, <laughs> it didn't make any fucking sense to me. I'm, no. I, I'm like, I'm think, I think they're just none of them past school. They're bored. No one, no one made them do schoolwork and homework. So none of them even fucking know what they're talking about. No. Here. So the breaking and, and the, the whole part about crime was on the test. It wasn't on the homework. <laughs> there we go. That's what happened. <laughs> That's what it was. One time, Lyle actually did commit a burglary with some of his friends. He took some things from his ex-girlfriend's house and told his little brother about what he did. So he told Eric. Yeah. Eric said he could do the same thing, but never ended up taking anything from the home. What the fuck? Anything there- you can do, I can do better? This shit is so weird. Who does this? It's a competition. What the fuck? I know. They're just playing around and fucking burglarizing people's houses and breaking and entering? Yeah. Like, it's fun? It's Now, the initial victims were friends of their parents, 
So in the first burglary that Lyle committed, over $100,000 worth of items were taken out of their home. That's like what, chump change for them? Fuck. And it literally was probably like five items. Probably. Little mini, like a watch, a ring, a necklace. It was probably like jewelry. Oh, yeah. I think they said it was cash and jewelry. Yeah. Because, of course, they would have $100,000 in cash and jewelry hanging around their house. That's like $10 to them. Oh, I wish. Yeah. Now, Pam, the prosecutor, says that their burglaries were just them taking a moving van, backing it up to an empty house and cleaning out the house, which is different from breaking into a family's house and stealing their silver. Like, I'm so fucking confused. So there's just empty houses that have a ton of valuables in it and there's no people living there? No. Or is it like their beach home? They have multiple homes, so they're just not home at the time. Like, I don't know. That sounded really weird when she said that to me, too. I I, didn't even write it down because it was confusing. It was super confusing. Maybe she was trying to be sarcastic. (sighs) Who knows? But Pam said it almost seemed like they were training to become criminals as if it could be their profession growing up. I don't disagree with that. They don't know what else to fucking do with their life. Like, this is the only thing that's exciting for them is being criminals and having that, like, adrenaline and that, like, oh, am I going to get caught? Yeah. Yeah. Brian Anderson, Kitty's brother, tells us that they do end up getting caught and Jose came to the rescue right away, per usual. Well, of course he did. That reflects on his reputation. Well, yeah, he didn't want it to, like, hit the papers or anything. So he personally went to every single home that had been robbed and asked them what the dollar amount was of the missing items, had his sons apologize, and wrote each one of them a check to ensure they wouldn't press charges. Right then and there, just a check on the spot. Can you imagine having that much fucking money? He literally probably spent a million dollars paying all these fucking people back. I mean, just in one day, like I have that much fucking money. Yeah. That I can just drop a million for my sons being fucking stupid criminals, stealing people's shit when they don't need to, when they have everything. What the fuck are they stealing this stuff for? Right. They have credit cards that their parents fund. Right. What the fuck? They could get whatever they wanted already. (laughs) That's so stupid. Yeah. When Jose found out about them getting arrested, he was more upset that they got caught versus the actual crime that they committed. Okay. Again, that does not surprise me. That, <laughs> it's still fucked up. That no, is, totally. That is, that's ass backwards, if you ask me. Now, he knew his sons were not leaders. They were just sheep. They followed anyone that they could. Jose was ashamed about them getting caught because he thought life was all about winning and it wasn't an, as important how you got there. So cheating, stealing, whatever you have to do, as long as you win, that's all that matters. Yep. I mean, is that not how it goes? (sighs) Yeah. Right? There are rules. (laughs) You have to follow those? Now, Terry Moran says that the parents lost control of them because they had so much money that it could pretty much buy them out of anything. Well, yeah. I mean, it wasn't just the designer clothes and cars, but like it could literally get them a free pass out of trouble. It's ridiculous it's so fucking true though there's literally nothing to stop them from doing whatever the hell they wanted to no and their parents are fueling this and feeding this like their parents are letting this shit happen it's right it's i'm sorry it's a little bit their own fault that the shit kind of happened the way it did you can't just like let a child raise itself and just throw cash at it and expect them to be a good human being when they grow up right doesn't work that way no Now, Pam, our prosecutor, said that when poor kids commit a burglary, 
they will go to juvenile court or go on probation. But when rich kids do it, they go see a psychiatrist. Well, yeah, because they've got and a they problem. Get a, they get a slap on the wrist. They don't yeah. they don't get any real time or have to like go to prison or jail or juvenile court, whatever. They don't have to do that. No. I mean, we see that now, even with celebrities. Oh, for sure. All the time. Yeah. Craig remembers that they got probation. They had to give the items back and they ended up moving to Beverly Hills. So now they're out of Calabasas. They're moving to Beverly Hills. Jose just really wanted to get away from all the bad things that had happened there and pretty much start over. Yeah. We're back to the Barbara Walters interview, and Barbara says there's a great number of people who think that you two are spoiled brats. What do you say to them? And Eric responds with, I don't know that there's anything I can say to them because I came from a family of wealth. That doesn't make me spoiled. I'm just a normal kid. To which Barbara, like, <laughs> all if she had anything in her mouth, she would have spit it yep. out. Because she was like, oh, Eric, you're a normal kid who killed your parents. And he's like, yeah, I know. He had a smirk on his face. Do you see that? Because he's fucking creepy. <laughs> he's fucking creepy. And she says, and you still say that you're a normal kid. And Eric responds with, well, I didn't have normal experiences, but I am. I did that. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what happened and wish that I could take that moment back. Barbara looks at Lyle and says, is it hard for you? And Lyle says, it is. It's difficult to be, you know, your whole 28 years defined by one day. Again, I mean, yeah, but don't fucking shoot people, maybe. I'm Just a thought. Okay, and I think people have to understand this. If you're going to kill someone, you will be defined by that the rest of your life. Yeah. People are not supposed to kill other people. Like, you just don't do that. So that is what's going to define you always. Right. When you're a pedophile, that's what you're defined as always. And we make sure in the law that it says you're a fucking pedophile. For the rest of your life. For the rest of your goddamn life. Yes. Because that's how it should be, you know, especially when you have people like this. It needs to happen, unfortunately, for them. Well, and for the safety of everyone else around them. For real. Yeah. Terry Moran comes back on from ABC News and says that Lyle Menendez was the alpha male of the two brothers. I mean, he was the oldest. That kind of shocked me. It surprised me, too, because he didn't act like it. No, I thought Eric was the one that ran the show. Totally. That's what it looked like. Yeah. So that was shocking to me, to say the least. Nope, I agree. Because every time that you see the two in some type of an interview, Eric is the one speaking. Always. And Lyle is just kind of looking at him and like waiting for his time to jump in. Yeah, seriously. Tag me in. Tag me in. We find out that Lyle had the charisma with a sinister intelligence. He said that he was very high functioning, but cunning and had a willpower much like his father who mastered Hollywood by being ruthless and cunning and capable of destroying the competition. Prosecutor Pam says that she thinks the boys were close due to fighting the common enemy being their father. Because Jose believed that life was like war and all is fair in war. A family friend tells us that kids might have a little more privilege in that area growing up, but that she didn't really feel like that they were any different than anywhere else. But I mean, these kids are getting like BMWs for their 16th birthday, and some of them have multiple cars. I got an Astro minivan for my first vehicle, okay? (laughs) We are not the same. I literally hate it when she said that. I'm like, Clara, we're not the fucking same. I'm sorry. You guys don't have any fucking problems. No. You guys have all the fucking money in the world. You don't have to work. Come on. 
our problems are definitely different here. We worry about money all the time. Right. That's where our stress comes from. And that's where our tough life comes from is money. You don't have that issue. So it's different. Right. (laughs) Which is why we have set up a GoFundMe for Kenzie and Amy. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Help us live our best life. (laughs) We want to record all day, every day for your listening ears. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Brian tells us that Jose and Kitty had begun having second thoughts on how lenient they had been. And that they were really concerned over the irresponsibility that Lyle was showing in life. They said that he felt like he was one of those kids that could do anything he wanted, whether it was ethical or not. Now, Lyle, at that time in his 20s, didn't even stay in college. So he was a college dropout. And Kitty began to realize that they'd raised a playboy. Apparently, he was surrounded by women all the time. And some of them even being famous Victoria's Secret models. Again, I don't see it. No, I but don't either. I don't know. Maybe money can buy you anything, even girlfriends. Absolutely, it can. <laughs> I've been told. We've seen a lot of really old men with 20-year-olds. I mean, no one's ever hired me no. to be a girlfriend. <laughs> but then again, I only did Victoria's Secret for like a day. Right, right. You know, in my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> so... To try to give a little bit more structure or discipline, why not start when the boys are in their 20s? They began to take away the boys' credit cards. So now Lyle was stealing their cards. Of course. To go out to buy whatever he wanted anyway. And apparently Eric was a disappointment in other ways. We meet Philip Kearney. He's a photographer and he was a friend of Eric's. He met Eric at a photo shoot in Beverly Hills. And he describes Eric as being really natural in front of the camera, despite not really having the physical attributes to become a working model. However, he was photogenic. I mean, again, he's creepy as fuck. And usually those people are semi-photogenic. Yeah. (laughs) He has a really good face structure. That's what I mean. It's the bone structure that's scary as shit. Yes. There's something about him. I don't like it. It's his eyes, though, too. I think his eyes blink twice. (laughs) Like, I think he's got, like, the double (laughs) lens. Like a lizard. Yeah. It's creepy. I'm just saying. Lizard his, people. His tongue might be forked. <laughs> it's just, I'm just, I'm just calling it like I see it. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so Philip remembers that Eric was really struggling to find his way. And he didn't know anything of what had been going on in his home life. So he wasn't real open with Philip about, you know, his family. I don't think guys really are, though, in general. I mean, are Guys they? don't really talk about their families and what's going on personally at home. They talk about sports and whatever else. Right. Beer. Well, and especially as like a 17, 18 year old kid. Yeah. You know why? It's that seemed like normal. Of course, he's not going to tell this dude his whole life story. Right. Boys don't do that. They don't open up like that. No, no. Philip says that he did notice a change in his personality on that last photo shoot that he worked with him on. He says that he was quieter, more withdrawn, and even a bit humble. He says that looking back now, the pictures look lonely and haunting, where at the time he felt like they were just looking like they were opening up more. I would agree with that. Yeah, they did look sad. He looked sad or that he was, there was something on his mind. Yes. That he couldn't get past. Right. Now, keep in mind that this is all taking place in the late 80s, early 90s. Back then, being gay wasn't exactly as acceptable as it is now, and gay marriage was decades off oh, yeah, at that point. Sure. So we're going back in time, 
And Jose Menendez did not appear to be the kind of father who would have embraced any of that. Absolutely. In any way, shape or form. Now, Barbara Walters does ask Eric about this in that interview. She says, did your father accuse you of being gay, saying something like that to try to tear you down? And Eric said, yeah. She goes on to ask, the prosecutor brought up the fact that you might have been a homosexual and that this could have caused some of the fury on your father's part. Eric agrees. Yes, he did hear that. And Barbara says, I mean, we didn't really hear about any girlfriends like they would have heard about Lyle's girlfriends because he was kind of a known playboy at the time. And Eric kind of like giggles in a weird way or does that weird like creepy Mm -hmm. smirk. And he's like, they were there. And Barbara straight out says, are you gay? And Eric says, no, I'm not gay. I hated the way she asked that question. It was so condescending. And it was so like, depending on the way you answer this question is going to be how I feel about you. She just... I know a lot of people like Barbara Walters. I think she's a little trashy. Never really liked her. She's no Nancy Grace. She's rude. She's disrespectful (laughs) and rude to a lot of people. And I'm like, don't. Don't be like that. Like, I know you need to interview people, but fucking be nice. Like, people are not always like you. And fucking get to interview people their whole fucking life and make millions of dollars and be in the spotlight for God knows how long. I just, I hated how she asked that question. Like, it just it just made my heart hurt because it was so rude it was so rude and she did it over like national tv you know i look at it totally different i look at it as she's interviewing people all day and she's used to hearing bullshit being spewed to her as if it's truth sure and she's like a no shit taking i'm gonna get to the bottom of this right kind of a person i also feel like the way she asked that could have gone back to what had happened after the murders, before they were arrested, that people really had a hard time believing what came out of these boys' mouths. Right, right. So I think part of it was just like, what is it? Is it this or is it this? Right. Like, we need answers. We find out from journalist Robert Rand that Kitty at the time was really overwhelmed with the boys. I mean, she was overwhelmed with Lyle getting into this burglary thing, Eric kind of getting into it, but also like neither one of them are following through with Kind of the lives that they were supposed to have. And then she finds out that Jose had been in an eight year long relationship with a woman out in New York and had been stepping out on their marriage. Eight years. It's a fucking long time that to be a in, long a, time. in an affair with someone and your wife not finding out for eight goddamn years. That's a long time. Like, <laughs> do you not notice anything change? <laughs> I mean, I guess he probably traveled a lot. So he was gone. He was away from the house. It's probably easier to hide. But what the fuck is this woman doing? I know. Waiting for his ass when he comes. Yeah. Ick. I know. Ick. I know. She's a stay-at-home mom, me too. It's not like she has anything. Like <laughs> It's not like she's consumed with work. Right. So Kitty becomes very upset. She's disappointed. And she's very worried that Jose is going to leave her. And that's fucking terribly sad. Right. She's worried about him leaving her and not her thinking, I'm Taking half his fucking money and leaving. I know. Sick. I know. Sick. People fucking leave. You can leave. You can live a better life. Be yeah. happy. Especially if you're married. Take half his shit. Yeah. Fuck it. Leave. You can move on and be happy with someone else that doesn't treat you like trash. Absolutely. And you know what? If you're going to be alone, be alone. Yeah. Be in a relationship with yourself where you don't have to fucking ask permission for nothing. Exactly. 
So we also find out that along with the woman in New York, Jose had also been seeing a woman in L.A. So he's got one on the East Coast and two on the West Coast. Neighbors report seeing zero affection between Jose and Kitty. They just weren't that couple. There was no public displays, none of that. But along with his affairs, Jose was also being supplied with prostitutes from a local madam. This guy has a sex problem, clearly. I mean, has to. That's too much. That's way too much. How do you keep track of everything? Like, that's that's a fucking lot of people to deal with. I'm sorry. How many doctor's appointments do you have to go to? Oh, icky. Yeah, icky. That's That's gross. The mental images happening right now are so beyond gross. I'm almost making myself sick. Yep. Rashes, bumps, itchiness. (laughs) Oozing. Oozing. Why is the word oozing coming to my my main mind? (laughs) (laughs) Like, why not just have it fall off at that point? There we go. Do you feel misunderstood? Afraid to talk to others out of fear you'll be thought of as weird? Does your mom get irritated with you for bringing up Jeffrey Dahmer at the dinner table? Are you looking for someone you can relate to? Well, we've got you covered. Hi, I'm Taylor. And I'm Sydney, host of the comedy podcast, This Is Gonna Sound Weird. A podcast that embraces topics such as true crime, the paranormal, or anything that would make your coworkers uncomfortable if you brought them up in the break room. Get word with us each Friday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Prosecutor Pam Bozanich says that it appeared as though Kitty was like the maid and the chauffeur, basically submitting to the three men in her life, her husband and her two boys. It seemed like she didn't really have the ability to stand up for herself. And she was reported to not have a lot of friends and really lived a pretty private life. Robert Rand tells us that at one point, Kitty actually overdosed on Valium and was rushed to the hospital right away. And hospital staff immediately thought that this was a suicide attempt. She had actually told Jose's sister earlier that she wished that the boys had never been born. That's really sad. And I wonder if she means that in a way that, like, she wanted to save them from this life. Like, that they weren't here to experience it. Or... Whether they ruined the marriage. I feel like that's where she was headed and really? why she felt that way is since they came along, everything's been different. Marriage ruined, all that kind of stuff. You're probably right. That I mean, that's just the kind of the vibe I got from that because yeah. it makes more sense. Yeah. I mean, kids do change things. Absolutely. They do. They're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not little Gabriel. No, he's going to be so cute. He's going to be perfect. Just tiny. He's going to be just a tiny little perfect boy. Mm-hmm. So we're back with another excerpt from the Barbara Walters interview in prison. Barbara asks, describe your relationship with your mother. Lyle responds with, and I quote, my mother was a person in a lot of pain and she was an alcoholic and she was suicidal. Eric says, and I quote, there was not a lot of communication, but I heard and saw her get beaten by my dad. Lyle states, quote, battered physically and certainly emotionally. Eric also says, and I quote, and I would try to help her through it. We went through it together, end quote. Also, neither one of them answered the question. (laughs) Not at all. Describe your relationship with your mother. I think that's honestly, that's the type of relationship they had. Where they were all kind of getting beaten by their dad and abused by their dad. 
And that's how they coped is they're, they're all going through kind of the same thing. It's fucking weird. No. Brian, Kitty's brother, says that he did not think Kitty was depressed in Beverly Hills. He just saw that Lyle was stressing her out quite a bit. And it broke her mentally when Lyle did what he did in Calabasas. Totally. It made her understand just how far he was willing to actually go with these crimes. In the spring of 1989, Jose had some conversations with his brother-in-law and told him that he was so disappointed in his sons that he was thinking about taking them out of his will. Craig tells us that as kids, him and Eric had wrote several screenplays together, specifically murder mysteries. And I'm like, what? Hmm, Weird. A little bit of similarity there. Philip Kearney says that Eric had wrote a script about a boy who killed his parents to collect the life insurance money. And he had asked Philip to read it to give him his thoughts on what he thought about the script. I think it's been done. Yeah. (laughs) We get a little bit of an excerpt from this screenplay. And it says, and I quote, A gloved hand is seen gripping the doorknob and turning it gently. Good evening, mother. Good evening, father. His voice is of attempted compassion, but the hatred overwhelms it. All light is extinguished and the camera slides down the stairs as screams are heard behind. End quote. That is creepy as shit. I mean, it's been done. (laughs) Literally. Craig goes on to say that while writing their screenplays, they needed to figure out how these characters were going to get money, and they thought this would be an interesting spin on the story. As time went on, though, Eric took the screenplay and rewrote the first few pages to be exactly what happened in his home when he shot his parents with Lyle. That's fucking creepy. Yeah, I think in a way, he wrote it, as fantasy for what he wanted to do. Sure. And then when it came down to it, he's like, I already know what to do. Right. I've, he, I've been already me- done that. And he memorized it, right? He, right? he was the one that originally thought of it, and now he could a- actually act it out in real life. Right. Terry Moran tells us that he already had the idea of this murder, and he was starting to execute it in his mind. It was powerful evidence for the prosecution because it showed premeditation. He 100%. had thought about this for a while, and was even writing it down right. for these screenplays. Yeah, what more do you need? Right. Philip never thought for a second that Eric was actually trying to plan out the murder of his own parents. It would never cross your mind. You don't think, especially if you're into murder mysteries and stuff like that, and you're writing screenplays or whatnot, stories even, you don't think that the people are going to actually act that out, especially well, no. if it's talking about killing people. Like, you don't think that. No. I mean, if that's the case, like, Stephen King is real fucked up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you just... His mind is pretty fucked. I mean, (laughs) more power to him. Now, when you look at the Menendez brothers as teenagers, you would see these spoiled rich kids that were spiraling out of control. And, I mean, come on, they became criminals for Pete's sake. Yeah. They didn't know what else to do. And their parents were only feeling the fire as this was happening. The viciousness that's shown through with the murders of their father and mother really starts with the seeds that were planted in their brains by their father, Jose, at a really young age. We meet Mary Jane Stevenson. She's a reporter for Court TV. And she says that any way you look at it, Jose was the kind of person people would cower from. Everyone described Jose as someone you should be afraid of and someone who always expects perfection. Why does this guy have friends? I don't know. I want to be the person that everybody cowers from. <laughs> I want to be the person people are afraid of. But like, expecting perfection? Maybe from other people. I mean, was it just because he was in the type of wealth society 
of his country clubs and, you know, all of his neighbors were wealthy, too, that those are the people you just associate yourself with, even if they're jackasses. I mean, must be that or it's like success by default. Like you're you surround yourself with successful people. Right. However, they got there. We hear a story from their neighbor, Alicia. Oh, my God. She tells us this story about their pet ferret that they had. Yeah. And one day, the ferret had died, and both Jose and Kitty assumed that it was one of their dogs who had done it. One dog that they had kind of looked like a chihuahua a little bit. Yeah. And the other looked like a Rottweiler. So, like, a big and little type of scenario. So, we can assume... It was the who chihuahua. They, who they thought, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, they immediately assumed it was the larger dog. And on this day, the boys opened the refrigerator door and saw the dog's head inside the refrigerator. What? How how more fucked up do you want your kids to be? I wish they would have gone further into this because it's like, first of all, did they think the boys made the dog do it? Like, why keep the dog's head in the fridge? The dog is already dead. Fucking send them to prison. Fucking no. The dog is an animal. Okay, you have a fucking ferret in your house. Why the fuck do you have a ferret? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Shit's going to happen like that. If you're going to leave your ferret out and you have a huge ass dog. Yeah. Shit can go down. Yeah. It's what happens. But you're going to fucking kill your dog and shove its head in the fridge so your little kids can see it. Oh, well, apparently. Oh, my God. I know. We learned from Robert Rand that just a few days before the murders, Lyle and his mother had actually gotten into an argument. We meet Dr. William Vickery. He was a forensic psychiatrist who had actually treated Eric Menendez after he was already in prison. Right. He tells us that Kitty was so upset during this argument that she began to hit Lyle and ripped off his toupee. What is happening? I know. This, like, <laughs> he's, escalated he's quick. He's 21 and he has a fucking toupee? Well, and when you look at it, I thought it was just <gasps> gross, like, 80s haircut. Like, that's all yeah. I thought it was. no. Oh, my God. I totally forgot that detail. I haven't watched this documentary in years, but I totally fucking forgot that he wore a toupee. Yeah. As a young adult, he's wearing a toupee. So Robert goes on to say that Eric saw this happen and he was shocked by the toupee. He didn't even know that Lyle had one. Right. We learned that Jose forced Lyle to wear this toupee because his hair was thinning. I fucking can't. Yeah, that would reflect bad on him. Oh, my God, I fucking can't. Now, both Eric and Lyle ended up having an emotional conversation about all the secrets in their family. I think that was kind of like the last straw for them because they already knew that there was a lot of secrets. But now there was one that they didn't know another one that they didn't know about each other. They're like, okay, we need to fucking talk about shit. Right. We need to kind of go over this. Yeah. Dr. Vickery said that Eric started crying and Lyle asked why he was crying. And Eric responded with dad has been doing things to me. We meet Diane Vandermolen. She's Eric and Lyle's cousin. And she said that Lyle told her about this abuse on him when he was eight years old. Lyle had came to her one night and told her that he was afraid to sleep in his room because his dad and him had been touching each other down there. Oh, my God. That makes me sad. And a little nauseous. Oh, my God. How could you do that to a little baby eight years old oh my god what is wrong with people i cannot stand this fucking child abuse pedophilia shit i i'm so over it no i'm so fucking over it i know 
this cousin Diane went and got Kitty to tell her about what Lyle had just told her. And of course, Kitty didn't believe her at all. <sighs> Go figure. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I Why? <laughs> why did she not believe it? I'm sorry. Kids don't make up shit like that. Kids do not make up shit like that. Most kids don't even know what that shit is. Well, right. Okay? Like, Peyton doesn't know what that is. And she's seven. Right. If they're that age and they know what it is, chances are somebody taught them that. And if they're telling someone that their parent is doing that to them. Yeah. Come on. Right. Come on. Kids don't make shit up like that. Right. Kitty's brother, Brian, tells us that there was no indication of any kind of abuse in their household. He doesn't believe it happened and truly believes that the motive all along was greed and money. So he doesn't believe the story at all of, of sexual abuse with the family members. He he thinks it was all just a ploy to try and get a lighter sentence. Right, right. Just their grasp at a defense. Right, right. Yeah. Karen Farrell, Kitty's friend, had actually been with her while she was on the computer changing her will. And at that same moment... Karen saw Lyle down the hall listening to what Kitty was saying. Kitty didn't care and even said they knew she wasn't going to give them any more money. She believes that was the moment they decided to murder their parents because this was just two days prior. Right. In an interview, Lyle and Eric said that's not how it happened. Well, of course. So that's all we really hear is they said that it, it didn't happen that way. Yeah. They waved that off quickly. Karen goes on to say that she had lunch with Kitty the week before the murders and she couldn't have been happier. Things were better with Jose and she thought things were finally on the up and up. Things were changing. She was going to be happy again. Yeah. August 20th, 1989 was a warm night in Beverly Hills. Many of the neighbors of the Menendez home had their windows open to let in some of the fresh air. We meet Detective Leslie Zoller with the Beverly Hills Police Department and he says that the town of Beverly Hills is quiet most of the time, even in town. It only averages about two murders a year. That's impressive. We hear part of the 911 call that occurred that night, and the 911 dispatcher goes on to immediately say, what's the problem? What's the problem? Kenzie and I were talking about this before we started recording, about how completely unprofessional this 911 dispatcher sounded. So we're not going to get into exactly how. You're just going to have to watch it. Yeah. it's unbelievable. It's bizarre. It it's, really feels weird. You have people calling you with emergencies. Like That's your job. It's very strange. Yeah. Uh, clearly, they only have about two murders a year, and maybe that's the only two times 911 has ever dialed. Right. Because <laughs> it was very strange. You have someone at home just picking up her cell phone. Yeah, yeah. She's like, well, I'm on call this week. Yeah. <laughs> so she answers, what's the problem? And Lyle says, someone killed my parents, and he is screaming. Hysterical. Hysterical. And crying. A lot. The dispatcher says, what? Who? Are they still there? Lyle, again, hysterically crying. Yes. The 911 operator. Were they shot? Lyle. Yes. The 911 operator. Who was the person shot? And Lyle says, my mom and my dad. We go back to that Barbara Walters interview. And Eric is saying, you know, there were 12 shots in the middle of Beverly Hills on a Sunday night. And no one calls the police? He says, we're waiting there at the house, at the bottom of the stairs, waiting to be arrested, and nobody shows up. So essentially, they had expected the police to come about right away. Yeah. I mean, within minutes, because there were roving police presence in the neighborhoods. 
but the many neighbors who had heard the shots didn't believe that it could really be true and decided not to tell and never called the police. At this point, the brothers are sitting there waiting for police to show up and they decide not to tell the truth right away about what happened either. The police get there and the boys are told to come outside. Detective Zoller says that as police entered the home, the silence was eerie. I mean, it's this huge ass fucking mansion. So everything echoes and it's just quite as shit. Well, and you know that two people were shot. Right. And you don't hear a thing. Right. That's not good. Right. Yeah. No one's moaning for help. Right. He goes on to say that the murder occurred in the back family room. The TV was still on. Kitty was there wearing white, covered in blood. Jose had a shotgun blast to the back of his head. There was blood everywhere, brain matter on the ceiling, the windows. I mean, the scene was truly horrendous. Our reporter from Court TV, Mary Jane, says that when they were found dead, police didn't do what they normally do in a situation like this. Prosecutor Pam says that the murder weapons were actually in Lyle and Eric's cars the whole time. No one even bothered to look. They did not. They didn't really do shit. No, no, because they've never seen a murder before. No, no. No one knew how to do this. No, this was the B squad. They obviously didn't attend to the first two murders that year. Or maybe these were the only two murders that year. Right, probably. Nobody took account of the fact that both the boys had gunshot residue all over their hands. Kind of a red flag. I'd say so. Beverly Hills criminals are treated very differently, she says. She says police know right away that they're going to lawyer up and treat police as a lower status. So they just kind of do the bare minimum and get the hell out of there. We meet Sergeant Tom Edmonds of the Beverly Hills Police Department, and he says that at the time that they were there at the house, they truly assumed that the boys were victims in this crime. I mean, they had just lost both their parents. Yeah. So they weren't going to press them for a bunch of information. You think they would, though, because they found their parents. So they should still be considered suspects and you take them to the police station. Here's my theory. I think good police officers work in like L.A., right, where there's a lot of crime. Yeah. And the ones who like the C, the C police officers, you know, (laughs) they just squeak in barely. Yeah. They are Beverly Hills Police Department officers because... (laughs) They're not going to have to do a lot. Right, right. That makes sense. I like that theory. They're essentially actors. Right. The boys had told the police that they had been out to the movies, left their parents at home, and when they came home, that's what they found. Again, nobody even checks into this alibi. Nope. Nobody looks to see if they have any tickets. They take their word for it. All of it. Literally. Barbara Walters asks them point blank, why did you murder them? Eric says, the first thing that comes to mind is terror. I was so afraid. I had ran downstairs crying, which this kid cries a lot. He's like 18 years old and he's crying like all the time. But he apparently just runs downstairs on a Sunday night crying. His mother's on the couch, had been drinking, asked him what's wrong, told her that she just wouldn't understand but she claimed she had known all of his life what Jose had been doing to him. Lyle had asked if she was going to just let it keep happening because apparently it was still going on with Eric. 
And Kitty responds by telling Lyle that he had ruined their family. A few days before that, Eric had vowed to himself that he was not going to allow Jose to continue with these behaviors anymore. That night, Jose had told him to go to his room and that there was going to be sex that was going to happen. And in Eric's mind, he screamed no. And that's his breaking point. This is all their story. When the news of the murders broke, there were reports going all over the place with tons of different theories. Yeah. A lot of them being that it was linked to gang activity or mob type hits, kind of like contract killings. Mm -hmm. Some people even said that it looked like it was a mafia hit because there had been some kneecapping that had happened. So apparently that's like a thing. I feel like that's a movie thing. Sounds so painful. Oh, no, it totally does. It's gross. Police realized that it was more than likely probably the brothers who had done it. However, they needed to prove it. Some family friends in the neighborhood remember Eric jumping into their vehicle one day and immediately asking for legal advice from her husband. And it was the day after their parents had been murdered. And she remembers Eric not having much sadness in his eyes. And it was more so about the fact that he needed legal advice, which she thought to be a little bit weird. They come to find out that the estate that they were basically going to inherit if wills weren't set in stone was valued around $14 million. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I wouldn't do it for less than 20. Yeah. 14? Meh. You know, so going back to like getting legal advice. Yeah. If you are close at all in any sort of murder or crime, lawyer the fuck up. You don't want to accidentally say something that can accidentally incriminate yourself. Right. They can take your words and twist them very fucking easily. So even if you are a thousand percent innocent, lawyer the fuck up. Right. Just to make sure your ass is secure and safe. Yeah. I don't think that was a bad thing for him to do. No. But again, it makes people think, oh, well, you have something to hide then, right? Right. Like you did something. It's also I'm protecting my ass. Right. From being charged with something I didn't do. Right. Robert Rand, our journalist, says that Days following the murders, Eric Menendez was a complete mess. He was emotionally distraught and allegedly confessed to the murders to his friend, Craig Signorelli. Craig tells us that when he heard about what had happened to his parents, he immediately needed to get a hold of Eric. So he does. He goes over to their house to play chess and was told by Eric what had happened. He described the moment of the murders in full detail And Craig kind of felt like he'd been stuck with this information almost against his will. I mean, he didn't want to know when you think about it, because now you're burdened with that information. You know, I think he was curious. Oh, who wouldn't? Right. I mean, I would hear you want to hear what actually happened and how it went down. But then after the fact, you're like, oh, shit. Now I know something that officers and the police don't. Right. That they need. What do I do? This is my friend. He confessed to murder. Now what the fuck do I do? Well, and I'd be a little bit afraid that I'm like, I'm in an empty house with this motherfucker right now. Right. And I know he's capable of killing the two people who brought him into this world. (laughs) I just play chess with him. Right. (laughs) And write screenplays. What am I? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Five weeks after the murders, the boys received a $400,000 insurance payout 
and went on this huge shopping spree. One of them buys a Rolex, the other buys a Porsche, and then someone buys a restaurant in New Jersey. (laughs) That was an interesting buy. It seems strange. Sound. Why not? I mean, good for investment wise, but right after your parents die and you're trying to get away with murder, it seems strange. Seems weird. A little bit. Reports say that the Neither one of the boys seemed to be shattered by grief. Instead, having more of like a grand old time spending a bunch of money. Yep. Now, Eric and Lyle claim that they didn't spend any of this money without prior approval from an aunt and an uncle. So they must have been in talks with somebody who was helping kind of plan the the service. I wish we could have heard from them, this aunt and uncle, to see if that was really true. Because if it was, that doesn't matter then. Their spending doesn't really matter. If they actually had gotten approval and their aunt and uncle were like, sure, go for it. Yeah. Okay, then it doesn't really matter. Then it's not fucking weird anymore, right? I mean, yes and no. But, like, I don't think the aunt and uncle were in charge of everything. Right. But I'd I'd just be interested to hear if they would come on and yay or nay it. Like, yep, that actually happened or no, it did not. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, we found out he bought the restaurant. We were like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. Or, yeah, I mean, he told us about it. It sounded like a great opportunity. We're like, go for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear from him. Totally. They also claim that they didn't even really know how to spend the money, so they admit to it being a bit frivolous. About six months after the murders, it got to be too much for Eric, and he ended up confessing to his psychologist, Dr. Oziel, about the entire thing. This became the catalyst of what would soon be the boy's arrest and yep. ultimate conviction. Yep. Mary Jane Stevenson, the reporter from Court TV, says that Dr. Oziel taped these sessions and got both of the boys to come in subsequently afterwards and explain what had happened. Well, Dr. Oziel ends up telling his lover, Judalon Smith, that these tapes were done without the boy's permission and that they were in a lockbox and for her to take them to the police in case anything happened to him. I mean, that seems pretty sound and legit. That's fucking terrifying. Can you imagine having someone confess to you that they murdered someone, especially their fucking parents and being like, holy shit, am I in trouble now? Mm -hmm. Because again, like you just stated, I'm not shit to them, right? They killed their fucking parents, the humans that brought them into this world. What am I worth to them? (laughs) They pay me to to listen. And now I know a secret that could land them in prison forever. A big one. Yeah. So Judalon ends up taking these tapes to the police. And that is what starts the entire process of arresting these boys and getting them into the courtroom for first degree murder. We learn that the guns that they had used to kill their parents had been purchased at a store called Big Five Sporting Goods in San Diego on August 18th, just two days before the killing. Yeah, that's not premeditation. (laughs) Right. The next day, Detective Leslie Zoller tells us that they were able to get warrants to recover those taped recordings and arrested the boys. Brian, Katie's brother, says that the whole family was shocked. No one could believe that Eric and Lyle would be able to kill both of their parents. Terry says that this was one of the first big trials he had ever covered. It was a spectacle, like the O.J. Simpson case. Like all of these big headlining cases, this was the same exact way. Yeah, except this was the first. 
We meet Hazel Thornton. She was a juror for Eric Menendez. She says that when she first saw Eric walk into the courtroom, her blood went cold because she had never seen anyone in person before who had murdered his parents. Again, he's creepy as fuck. (laughs) Yes, he is. (laughs) This case was complex, remember, because both boys claimed that they did it, that they killed their parents, but it was because they had been sexually abused. So it was almost like that spin on like self-defense. Totally. Well, the defense needed something. Yes, exactly. But it begs the question, if they were sexually abused, should that lessen their responsibility for murder? Because they're going to get charged with murder either way, right? They, right? they killed their parents. But if it is self-defense, they could get off, right? Or at least have a lesser sentence. Right. Yeah. They may still be convicted of murder in some fashion. And maybe a lesser charge. Right. Terry didn't believe the sexual abuse claim at all. He thought it was a desperate attempt to save them from getting the death penalty. Pam knew that she could prove the brothers killed their parents and thought they might come up with a sexual abuse claim as their main defense strategy. And lo and behold, they did. Well, doesn't this seem to be something that a lot of people do? Yeah. Apparently, everybody who commits a crime has been sexually abused. Right. It's a last stitch effort for a lot of people. Yeah. I think it does happen. Oh, a lot. people than we believe. But yes, this is true. And that's why it's hard to believe it sometimes. Well, that kind of reminds me of like the whole Casey Anthony thing. When Jose just like throws out that she had been molested by her dad when it had nothing to do with the rest of the case. Right. Never talked about it again. Never talked about it again. Stupid. Now, Pam... Our prosecutor knew the trial was going to be a nightmare because Leslie Abramson was the defense attorney for Eric and Lyle. Leslie's reputation was that she was a fighter who would go to the ends of the earth for her clients, even lie, steal, and cheat to win. Hmm. Interesting. There's someone else in this documentary that does the same thing. Well. The prosecution's strongest piece of evidence were the crime scene photos. Pam had the facts. She could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they both premeditated this murder. Oh, totally. Terry thinks the prosecution did a great job at telling the story about these brothers who were clearly plotting the murder of their parents. They completely ripped apart the brothers' stories and made them seem like liars. He thought the defense was just a joke, but the brothers decided to take the witness stand, which normally... They advise against. Right. But they knew they needed to in this scenario. And I think it helped. Well, I think it did. Because like you said, normally somebody who's on the defense is not going to jump up and take the stand. However, they knew these two boys did it. They were admitting to it. Right. Now they just had to prove that it was a self-defense act and not just a cold-blooded killing. Right. Again, that why. Why did it happen? And they knew that they could be cross-examined and it wouldn't be too damaging. Right. Yeah, it's not like they could say, slip up and say, yeah, we did it. Right. We already knew. The brothers' stories were that they were afraid of their parents killing them. That was kind of the basis of why they decided, oh, we got to kill our parents. So they said that they were scared. Maybe I'm just thinking outside the box here, but wouldn't it be easier to kill somebody who is small, not grown children? Right. If you wanted to kill your kids, wouldn't you just do it early on? I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like it'd be easier to get away with. 
Yeah, I see that one. See that I don't know if I believe fully because there is a lot of parts of this I do fully believe. And totally. I really believe it happened. Some of the things. Yeah. This one, I don't think that the I parents were going to kill them. I don't think that either. I think they were going to take them out of their will and maybe kick them out of the house. Yeah. Which maybe to them was just as bad. Right. But you yeah, know? I don't ever believe that they're, they were in fear for their actual lives. I don't believe that either. Yeah. Alicia, the neighbor and the friend of the Menendez family, says that they had found out that they really went after their mother. They had even reloaded and came back to shoot her some more. Jose had been shot so many times in the head that he was almost decapitated. Oh, my God. Can you imagine walking into that crime scene? I would never be able to fucking sleep again. Is it weird that that kind of a crime scene is one that I would rather walk in on? Because it would look so bizarre and not real oh i that's like a movie uh, yes you know what i mean that sounds more like a movie versus like just walking in and seeing like a single bullet hole to the head sure and like the person is still like i don't know like eyes open and just like laying there or in this case they would almost look like props oh yeah especially if your head's almost gone yeah oh god Pam tells us that Eric had testified that his mother had tried to get up to run away but was not successful because they saw that she had blood on the bottoms of her shoes, which that only would happen if she was trying to get up. And it was in the treads, too, so she had put pressure down. Right. Yeah. Pam really thought that when Kyle was describing the killing of his mother, that the jury would find it reprehensible and convict him immediately. Like, there would be no ifs, ands, or buts. Yeah. Terry says that the prosecution convinced him that the brothers didn't fear for their lives when they told the story about Lyle purchasing a $9,000 Rolex watch just four days after the killings. Trials are really just storytelling competitions. Who can tell the better story to the jury? Because whoever can will win. Right. And to do that, you need to tell them, here's this person. This is what their experience was. This is what they did. And this is why. Pam says that you could hear a pin drop in the courtroom when Eric stated that his dad had been molesting him. This is when she started to get a little nervous. They always dressed in pastels while in court, like crew neck, Ralphler, and sweaters with like the polo shirts underneath. And Leslie treated them as young, innocent boys, not the killers that they actually were. And Pam even said that they were referred to as the boys during the whole trial. Yeah. Not the men, not the brothers, but always the boys. That's why I literally thought that they were not as old as they were when it happened. Right. Like in my head, I legit thought they were teenagers. Yes. And I mean, under the age of 18. Right. Like even if they were 15 and 16. Like, that's what I pictured. Well, especially when you keep saying the word boys and you're they're referring to them. They're not fucking boys. They're adults. They're adults. I mean, they dress like Easter eggs, but that's not, that's beside the point. <laughs> right. That's not what we're talking about here. Even though it's a crime in itself. Yes. <laughs> Fashion crime. Terry Moran explains that the abuse excuse was relatively new in a courtroom setting. He says that it's a really hard thing to prove because, of course, that type of thing happens in private generally you're not being molested out in the open by your parents where everybody can see it right you can't actually prove it it's very hard to prove you would need to have had it happen right away with some type of let's say penetration that i don't know maybe like 
hurt you in a way where you could get that tested and like, yeah. you know what I mean? There would have to be like evidence right away. It's not something you can. Or eyewitnesses of some sort. Right. That also saw this happen. Right. But again, it is hard to actually prove in a court of law. Yes. And he says that it was going to be really hard to explain a lot of this stuff through that. He says that sitting through the testimony of the boys when it came to the abuse part was some of the hardest days of testimony he's ever had to sit through. We find out that Eric was about 10 years old when he had told his cousin, Andres, that he'd been sexually molested and abused by his dad. Andres is on the stand telling us that Eric described his father as, quote, massaging his dick, unquote, and that he had made his cousin promise not to share this information with anybody. So he never did until he was put on the stand. Yep. We hear testimony from Lyle saying that Jose would have talks with him. He was about six to eight years old at the time and that dad would fondle him, then have him return the favor. He said that they'd undress together. They would be in the bathroom together and he would put Lyle on his knees and guide his movements to perform oral sex on himself. I fucking can't. I know. Oh my fucking God. Lyle also describes his dad using objects like toothbrushes to anally penetrate him and that he had never told his brother about any of this. But a little bit later on, began doing the same things to his brother in the woods behind their house, oh, which God. I'm not surprised about. No, I'm not surprised that That's that was he happening. Knows. And he probably thought it was a form of love or something like and maybe frustration. Right. He's he's older. So yeah. he he needs to take his frustration out on someone because he doesn't like it. I think it was that. I think it was feeling oh, a little man, bit in control. So fucking sad. I know. Terry explains that while watching the boys describe these types of acts on the stand that occurred to them by their father, he said that you could see the shame and physical, emotional response that was happening through like, I mean, they're shaking. Eric has like a vein that's about to pop out of his forehead. I mean, these were way more convincing as to reality. And it made him believe this. This had to be truthful. This wasn't just storytelling at this point. Well, I mean, those bodily reactions are very hard to fake. Right. Like you can tell when people are faking, but these boys are holding back tears. I mean, the expressions on their faces are so like broken. And I've waited so many years to like get this out. You know what I mean? Like this is years and years and years of tears backed up. Right. And you could just tell it was it was it was hard for them to talk about it. And shameful, right? It's embarrassing. Oh, totally, yeah. Like you don't want to have to talk about this stuff, especially on live television. Right. And Terry says that, you know, they were terrible actors when it came to them trying to claim that they were in fear for their lives. But when it came to their childhood traumas that they were reliving on the stand for everybody to hear, they were the epitome of a victim. I Mm -hmm. mean, you could tell. When Eric gets on the stand to testify a little bit about this, he has asked what he had been hoping about most that summer, what he had been looking forward to. And he says that he had hoped to be going to college at the end of the summer. 
And when asked, you know, why were you so excited to go to college? He almost looked extremely annoyed to even be asked that question. And he said, you know, with the hope of freedom from having to have sex with my father. I mean, he looked just upset. Anybody even asking him that question? Yeah, absolutely. And again, hearing that. I know it's so fucking like it's so tough for me. I, I just I can't wrap my mind around it. I can't. It's so fucking horrifying and unfathomable. Like, yeah, it's gross. How could you fucking do that to your own babies? Like how? Oh, yeah. So we're back to the testimony of Lyle. And he also talks about how he touched his mother as well around the age of like 10 to 12 years old when he would sleep in bed with her. Brian Anderson, Kitty's brother, finds this to be absolute insanity and that his sister would never do something like that with her sons or allow it to happen to her. The prosecution also kind of felt that throwing Kitty into this was done in a way to justify their murdering her because she was complicit to the abuse. Yeah. My personal thought is that if this was happening by Jose to the boys, my thought is that Kitty didn't protect them like the boys thought she should have. Yeah. Whether she knew about it or not. She knew about it. A million percent. If he's having sex with his sons... She fucking knows about it. There is no fucking way that shit can happen under your fucking household without you knowing. I totally disagree with that. I Ugh. think shit can happen if you're not looking for Ugh. it. I, I, and if you don't believe that that's even an option, you're not going to look at it like that. So I I, I see what you mean. Like, Ugh. how could anybody I, be so stupid to not see that? I, but at the same time... I don't know. Jose might have been really good at hiding things. I don't know if... I don't know if she ever acted... Like sexually with her kids, I don't. Right. I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that much. part either. It's I really think... hard for me to believe that she didn't know about it. At least something. Well, and Very she might have known and maybe didn't believe it to the extent. Like you know, she had been told, and sure. maybe she didn't because she didn't act on it, and maybe she wanted to to like block it out. Like she didn't want to think that something like this was happening in her household. Right. Her family was perfect. Remember, everything about them was perfect. Right. And I think the boys took out their frustration on her much more during the murder because of the fact that she did not stop it. Right. That's my thought. I I think that makes sense. Yeah. For sure. It was a revenge towards her. For sure. And it was a stopping of the abuse by killing Jose. Yeah. That's my thought. I agree. That does make sense. Norma Novelli, a jailhouse confidant of Lyle, comes in very briefly and says that She thinks that the boys would have gotten away with it if they had left Kitty alive because what mother wouldn't stick by their children in this situation? And if this was the stuff that was coming up, would she fight against them? Probably not. She would probably be on their side and be like, yes, this was happening or or I didn't know this was happening. But, you know, towards the end. Right. Whatever. When it all came down to it, many people just wondered, could you believe what they were saying? Jurors were interviewed and said that these were either the best actors in the world or all of this is a really true tragic story. And remember, because it was a jury trial, they needed all 12 jurors to agree on the verdict for them to be convicted. Unfortunately, they were deadlocked after 
what they said was six months of trial and 25 (laughs) days of deliberation. (laughs) Yep. Can you imagine? I, it makes sense. No, it does. But oh my God. Well, and to know that you have to retry it now and go through it all again, that would be really, really hard. I don't think I'd like that part about being a lawyer. There's a lot I wouldn't like about being a lawyer, but that's one of them. No, that's literally going, spending hours and hours and hours putting together your story, getting it perfect, laying it out for the jury for it to be a mistrial. And then you have to start all over again. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I know. (laughs) Robert Rand says the public was outraged and that they had admitted that they had done the crime. What was the jury's problem with not convicting them? We meet an L.A. County District Attorney, Gil Garcetti, and he's announcing that they would be retrying the case a second time. But this time there were some changes. The judge actually banned all cameras in the courtroom and certain defense evidence wasn't allowed. Now, because of this, the jury in the second trial never really heard of the family history and When interviewed later on, some of the jurors stated that if they had known about the sexual abuse allegations, that they never would have voted to convict them. Which is fucked up. Yeah. They didn't get to have any of that evidence in? How would that not have a play in why they ended up where they were and why they killed their parents? Except it's not evidence. That's the problem. Oh, my God. It is, unfortunately, hearsay. I think that's so... I think that was just a misstep on the judge's part. I I think that, okay, cameras, yes, get that shit out of the courtroom. That is making shit 10 times worse. Like, it doesn't need to be sensationalized like that. Right. Sure. I think it should have been done the same exact way as it was the first trial. Like, same fucking evidence. See if a jury trial, a a whole new jury, finds the same thing. Yeah. If they can't come to a decision, then you know that, okay, they're kind of thinking that this might be second degree. This might be manslaughter. You know, this might be something of a lesser charge to convict them, but to not say anything at all. Yeah. Of course they're going to get convicted. (laughs) Like It's an open and closed case then. Right. Why would they even need to be there? (laughs) I know. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. It was very weird. (laughs) Well, Terry Moran explains, too, that at the time that the second trial for the Menendez brothers was going on, the O.J. Simpson trial was going on. When O.J. was acquitted... To the shock and horror of many people in the L.A. area, well, and nationally, yeah, all I would over say, the world, there was tremendous pressure not to have another ridiculous verdict come back. So, of course, they knew these two boys did commit the murder. They needed to convict them of that. I think they just didn't really they weren't clear enough about how many charges there were. They both ended up being convicted of first-degree murder in the second trial, as we would have assumed. Yeah. Terry thought justice had been done in this case because, you know, they did kill their parents, and there was no denying that, but thought it was an injustice when they became laughingstocks around their claims of sexual abuse. We heard that, like, SNL was mocking them, and it was kind of all just, like, a joke. Like, they made it out to be a joke, when in reality... I believe that it happened. I mean, for them to say things when they're eight and 10 years old to people. Right. You don't make shit up like that. You don't even know what that is. Right. You might lie about, you know, not having a certain toy or, you know, something silly. 
about cleaning your room when you didn't. You wouldn't make shit up like that. So that's why I'm like, it had to have fucking happened. To what extent, we'll never know. Right. But something fucking happened to them. We're back with a, the Barbara Walters interview in prison. And Barbara asks, what went through your minds when you heard that verdict? First degree murder, guilty. Eric said, and I quote, that I was going to spend the rest of my life in prison without any possibility of ever getting released. Barbara said, it could have been death. Did you know that? And Eric said, quote, that was the second phase, whether it was going to be life or death, and I was terrified, end quote. Robert Rand explains that Eric and Lyle were only 18 and 21 when they killed their parents, and today they're 48 and 45 years old. At the height of the trial, both Eric and Lyle were receiving thousands of letters a week from people all over the world. Dr. Vikery tells us that Eric put him on the visitor list and he had been there on one occasion when his wife was there. They had been corresponding initially, but after a few years, they decided that they wanted to get married and they got married in prison. Even had a Twinkie cake. <laughs> that was their uh, wedding cake. Well, because you can't have a knife to cut the cake. No, no. <laughs> and I actually looked this up, too. They are still married to this day. They got married in 1999. They are still married to this day. Dang. Why? What's the secret, Eric? What the fuck is the point is what I, I want to ask. What's the point? Is Why? For sure. Does this woman not want sex? Does she not want a real relationship? Like, what the hell? Yeah, I don't get it. Barbara even asks Tammy, who is his wife, why on earth would you change your whole life for Eric Menendez? And she replies with, he's the most sensitive, kind. I mean, he's just always there for me. He worries. I never had that before. Obviously, they've never been able to consummate their marriage. They've never had sex before. They only get to hold hands and kiss when she is leaving after their visit. Sounds Yay. precious. Sounds spicy. <laughs> it's getting, getting a little spicy up in here. A little uh, hot. It's a little warm. Eric had stated to Barbara Walters on a phone call that he isn't able to offer her all the things that another husband can, but he offers her unconditional love. Lyle Menendez developed a friendship with Anna Erickson and ended up marrying her, too. Their marriage only lasted a year, but Lyle got married a second time to Rebecca Sneed. They are still together to this day and seem to have a really close relationship. They've been married for, well, at the time, I think he said 13 years, and that was back yeah. in 2017. Yeah. So they've been married for quite a while as well. Terry's thought about this whole case is that if they would have been the Menendez sisters, they would be free today. So they yeah. would have probably went to prison but didn't have to spend the rest of their life in prison. Right. So we hear a little bit of an excerpt from Lau Menendez on the phone in prison, kind of telling us what he views now and what he thinks now in 2017 when this was released. Right. Quote, I'm more a fully formed adult now. Of course, looking back, it's shocking to think about that that happened and that I could have been involved in taking anyone's life and my parents' life. It seems unimaginable because it seems so far removed from who I am and who I was. I don't know what helps some people survive it better than others. And to a degree, I don't feel like I did. I mean, is there that much difference between a kid who goes through that, commits suicide, or kills his parents and ends up doing life in prison? It's still a failed, destructive ending. That's part of the tragedy of it. It could so easily have not happened. End quote. I mean, he nailed it. It's so easily yeah. could not have happened. Yeah. 
we get some on-screen text that states all of Eric and Lyle's requests for appeals have been turned down. The two brothers have not seen each other since 1996. They are both serving life sentences in separate prisons. Now, I did actually look up and I found an article that was talking about how they have recently seen each other. Really? Yes. They were at the same prison for some reason. And I I didn't get more information. But recently, within the past few years, after this was already, you know, said and done, they've been able to see each other again. I'm kind of surprised they haven't been able to do like Zoom calls or anything like that, to be honest. Yeah, it seems. I mean, I don't know that that's that's how it ended. I'm I'm still kind of conflicted a little bit with it. Do I think they needed to be in prison? Absolutely. They killed their parents very brutally. Do I think it was fair that the sexual abuse didn't come into play when they were getting sentenced? I don't think that's really fair. So it's hard to say, like, have they learned their lesson? Would they be good people in society? Could we let them out and would they do good things? I don't know that either. They've lived so much of their life in prison. It's hard to really tell. Could people like that live on the outside? Right? Yeah. I don't really know. Like, is there a such thing as reform? Right. 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 Especially when they went in as such young people. Well, yeah. I mean, I can see why this case had so much coverage and why it was so sensationalized in the media and covered so widely. I mean, I think it was correct because they did plan and execute, for lack of any other better way of saying it, the murder of both of their parents. Right. I mean, it was planned. It was thought out and premeditated in every way, shape or form. And they really didn't go against that. I mean, they they, no. they they confessed to killing them, but they said it was due to all the trauma that they had, you know, dealt with as children. And they kind of came to a breaking point and they just couldn't take it anymore. And it's like, it's not a reason to murder someone, but yeah. I can see why it happened. Well, but the other thing, too, is that they spent six months lying about it after the fact. Right, right. And just going off on these sprees and living their lives as if they didn't do it. So And I can I can also see why they did that too. Because yeah. again, they were you free. don't want to live your whole life in prison, right? right? No one wants to do that. And they're young. And they were thinking they were young and stupid and right. thought that they could actually get away with it just by lying, right? Yeah. That no one would ever find out. Obviously that didn't happen. But yeah. so I do believe that, you know, their conviction was fair, the the verdict. In a lot of ways, I do think that them spending like a life term in prison is fair and a lot of places consider life to be like 25 years right Right. if the sexual abuse is true then i definitely believe that they should have been spared from the death penalty which they were so right i'm glad that that worked out yes does it make sense yes that makes sense yes but other than that guys that is the end of this documentary now next time we will be back with the netflix documentary amanda knox So we're going to hear about the girl that moved over to Europe for a short stint of time and ends up with a murdered housemate. This was something that was really big at the time as well. Yep. And I think it's it's one that a lot of people want to know more about because it, it seems so like out there. Absolutely. Yeah. In the meantime, feel free to go out there on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. Please rate and review us. We love those five-star ratings with a little, you know, little spicy caption. Those are my favorite. You guys, I'm telling you, it makes my day. I know. If you'd like to follow us on all the socials, on Instagram, you can find us at sheer underscore crime underscore podcast. On Twitter, we are at sheer crime pod. 
TikTok, you can find us at Sheer Crime Podcast. You can join our Facebook group, the Sheer Crime Podcast Discussion Group. We've gotten a lot more like interaction going on yeah. on there lately, and I really enjoy that. <laughs> a lot more people getting added to the group. It's fun. It is fun. And a lot of like commenting yeah. back and forth, yeah. which is cool. And then, of course, if you have any requests that you would like us to cover, any documentaries out there that you've watched that you think we would do a good job in relaying the information to the masses, you can always send us that to our personal inbox, requests at sheercrimepodcast.com. With nothing more for me to say at this point, I'm going to ask everybody to stay cool, stay safe, stay sane, and remember... Never run with scissors. Bye, guys. See ya.